Even the world's largest companies aren't immune to activist investors. With the management teams of well-known businesses such as Salesforce, Disney, and Hasbro attracting the attention of activism campaigns, what are the implications for corporate strategy and shareholders? One of the activism arguments is that companies should be returning capital more aggressively. And so I think that the nature of the companies and the nature of the environment and the fact that there is more capital out there is going to create this doubling and tripling up, which we've already seen and our expectation is that we'll continue to see. I'm Allison Nathan, and this is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. When the stock prices of companies are down, it tends to attract the attention of activist investors who lobby for changes they hope will improve a target share price. Joining me today to talk about the evolution of these activist campaigns are Goldman Sachs's Avi Marotra, co-head of America's M&A, who runs activism and shareholder advisory, along with Pam Kodoloti, who serves as the global chief operating officer for the practice in global banking and markets. Avi, Pam, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Great to be here. It seems every other day we are reading about another new activist campaign. So describe the overall level of activism today and how it compares to pre-pandemic levels. Pam, maybe you can start us off. So before I jump in, when we mean activism, we mean shareholder activism. So these are basically investors that are seeking to agitate to change outcomes. So whether it's around board composition or strategic alternatives or strategic positioning of a company, that's what we mean by activism. And look, it's funny because last week we actually had 12 campaigns. So that's almost two campaigns per working days. So very high level of activity. What we see in the public market is we're back to pre-pandemic levels. But what I find fascinating is when you think about the private level of activity. So for every campaign that you see publicly, we are working on two or three times the number of campaigns privately. Some of those will become public and some of those will remain private. So very, very high level of activity right now. And what's driving that? When I think about it, I think it boils down to three things, really. One, we still are in a very volatile market and valuations are down. And so that creates just fertile grounds for activists. Let's not forget that they value investors at the end of the day. So it's a lot of targets that they can pick on. The second thing is really activists have a lot of capital to work with. Some of them were very successful raising capital last year. For instance, Elliott raised 13, $13 billion the biggest capital raise ever, and that money has to go somewhere. And the last reason I would say is the number of activists is ever growing, right? You think about what we like to call the first timers or occasional activists. So people who aren't really activists, they are now more and more willing to go public. And the second sub bullet on that, if you will, is all these activist funds are spawning new funds. So you have ex Elliot PMs raising their own fund, ex-ICANN launching their own fund. And so the list keeps being bigger and bigger. I might add that when you look at the S&P 500 today, one out of four companies in the S&P 500 has an activist in it. And if you look at that in Europe, one out of three companies in the FTSE 100 has an activist in it. So these elevated levels of activity, this proliferation that Pam talked about, we're seeing this in very meaningful way across geographies. And when you say has an activist in it, you mean that there is an activist campaign targeted at these companies? 
really what we mean is that there's an activist in the shareholder register. Some of those will lead to campaigns tomorrow. Some of those are active campaigns today. But when one fourth of the S&P 500 has an activist in it, and when you think about the holding time and the holding period for some of these activists, which is a little bit shorter than your long only typical investor, they'll cycle out of those investments and into new ones. So it's really just a matter of time if you're a large cap company before you might see an activist jump into your stock. And if we think about the targets for these activist investors, historically, it's tended to be smaller, medium-sized companies because that's where value is often found and where there's more upside, potentially. But a lot of the targets more recently have been large cap companies. So what's driven that change, Avi? Maybe you can answer that. Yeah, I think building on what Pam said, that because there's more activism capital and there are more activists out there, they're looking to invest more efficiently in larger and larger targets. I think it's drawn them towards large cap companies. Large cap companies also have market caps that allow you to enter the stock and exit the position relatively seamlessly. So I think that's also attractive to them. And we're living in an environment right now where the GDP profile is uncertain. It's a harder economic environment. And these larger companies, I think, afford a little bit of defensive capabilities to the activists. They're drawn to companies that in a more volatile economic environment may be able to ride out that economic environment more soundly. And so I think for all of those reasons, the fact that there's more capital, they're looking to invest that in larger chunks, they're looking to have fluidity in exiting the position when they need to, and the fact that some of these large cap companies are viewed as defensive, I think it's drawn them into to this nexus of very large corporates. And not only is activity up in the space, but there's this trend that is often discussed where we're seeing swarming of activists, so many activists converging around the same company. So what's deriving that behavior? Yeah, look, I think that many of the activists are looking for the same things in terms of what draws them towards a company's vulnerability. And when you've got lots of activists targeting large cap companies and a finite number of those large cap companies, it's not surprising to us that we'll see doubling up and tripling up of activists in these companies. We've seen that notably in the last handful of months. Our expectation is that as we go through the course of this year, we're also going to see that. Large cap companies also in this environment have stronger balance sheets. And one of the activism arguments is that companies should be returning capital more aggressively. And so I think that the nature of the companies and the nature of the environment and the fact that there is more capital out there is going to create this doubling and tripling up, which we've already seen. And our expectation is that we'll continue to see. And is this purely a U.S. phenomenon, a global phenomenon? What does this look like elsewhere in the world outside of the U.S.? No, I think it's a fantastic observation. In our view, activism has fully become a global phenomenon. If you take a look at Japan, which is not really a place that you would think of to have a lot of activist activity, Japanese companies have been targeted by activists quite pervasively over the last couple of years. And I think there's some reasons for that. Japanese companies have strong cash balances, strong balance sheets. In many cases, they also have lots of different business lines. So there's a view and an argument towards pruning the portfolio or optimizing the portfolio. And from a governance standpoint, they've got boards that are a little bit less diversified than U.S. boards, either from a gender standpoint or from a skill standpoint. And so we've seen activism in Japan grow quite in a pronounced manner. And we've also seen activism in Europe flourish quite aggressively. And in Europe, the phenomenon is very much this large cap phenomenon that we've talked about, where many European companies, particularly the larger ones, are visited not by just European activists, but also U.S. activists. And in fact, the average size of a European company that's being targeted by activists this year has been $40 billion. That's astounding if you ask us. Right. So the companies that are targeted might be international. The investors or the activist investors might be based outside of the U.S. as well. Correct. 
And Pam, when we think about these activist campaigns today, what are really their major asks? We often think about a spinoff or an M&A outcome being the key goal of activist campaigns, but we're in a very difficult environment, as we've already mentioned. M&A activity is not particularly strong. So what are the outcomes that these activist investors are looking for today? That's a great question. I will maybe separate M&A and spin-offs because I do think that investors are still very focused on portfolio simplification. So spin-off divestitures, and they tend to target these days capital-intensive lines of businesses, low-margin businesses. But you're right, on the M&A, or very specifically sale of company, which used to be a major ask, that's going down. And it's being replaced by operational thesis, right? And it's about frugality around capital spending, operational efficiencies, margins, profitability. So that's a new theme that we are seeing. And as I think about it, the environment is ripe for it, right? You had a bunch of companies that, whether it's industrial tech companies, healthcare companies that had very high growth, that focused on high growth. And now in this environment, investors at large, put activists aside for a minute, but investors at large are saying, We want more focus on cost. We want more focus on profitability. So when an activist comes with a thesis around that, they're frankly pushing on an open door. It's very easy for them to gain traction with these kind of arguments. The other things we're seeing is capital allocation. So there's a big focus on return of capital to shareholders, especially for companies with high cash balances and depressed stock prices. But the one thing that's interesting, there's a lot of focus on inorganic growth. So should you really be buying businesses at this point in time? Is it the best way to allocate capital? That's what we're seeing now. And I might also add that on the return of capital point that Pam mentioned, we are coming off of two back-to-back years of absolutely record share repurchase activity. So in 2021, there was almost a trillion dollars of corporate share repurchases. In 2022, it exceeded a trillion dollars. So as we enter 2023, we're coming off the back of a momentum of two very active and record years of share repurchase activity. So, Avi, what are your thoughts about a slow M&A environment and the implications of that for activist campaigns? Yes, our view is that the M&A environment may be slow right now, but it's going to recover. And when it does, I think the activist demands are going to shift and revert back to many of the things that they had focused on when we had a very robust M&A market, specifically that companies should reevaluate whether they should be sold. So this exploration of strategic alternatives will be back on the table. And you touched a little bit on sectors. Are there specific sectors where activist campaigns seem to be more numerous or focused right now? I think tech continues to be a big target because, again, of these sort of high growth companies, but we're seeing it everywhere, right? Healthcare, industrials. I don't think any sector is immune, especially if you are a high growth company that needs to now focus on profitability. I think it's really pervasive right now. And so if you look at all of these different campaigns that are going on and ones that have occurred in the past, what would you define as a successful activist campaign? I can start and I'm sure Avi will have thoughts because we debate that a little bit. Look, ultimate success is you convince your other investors that the board and the management team are doing what they should be doing to drive shareholder value and they're executing on that. And therefore, there's no need for external intervention. Now, most of these cases never see the light of day because the activist goes away. They know they're not going to have traction. So that's one. Other success is, look, if you are in a situation where the company needs to make concessions, for me, success is how do we contain this in the private domain so that we can limit the distraction, the public distraction for the company. Sometimes you have to fight, right? And you just have to do it. But containment is also a form of success. 
I would say another way to think about success is that when an activist targets a company, particularly if it becomes public, it may draw other criticism, it may draw other activists. And so I think another way of thinking about success is that you're able to manage the situation without it proliferating into something that becomes bigger than just the initial attack. And so I think that there's an enormous amount of focus on getting these things resolved quickly getting them resolved efficiently. And particularly as you had raised the question about swarms, those are particularly challenging situations where we've got multiple activists very often who are looking for different things. They're giving you demands that are competing demands and sometimes inconsistent demands. And so I think success is to make sure that you're not going to the lowest common denominator and negotiating with each one of these individual activists, that you're taking the broader picture into account and resolving it efficiently and quickly. We're also about to embark on proxy voting season, which is when most publicly traded companies hold their annual meetings. And this year, there's a change in proxy voting rules that lowers the entry barriers for activist shareholders. Avi, can you explain what that change is and what it means? Yeah, so very simply, it used to be the case that if you were running a proxy contest, the activists had their own proxy card, the company had their proxy card, and you needed to vote one card or the other card. The universal proxy rules allow you to simplify that into one card, and I think it's going to have a couple of different effects that we should keep in mind. One is that, as you mentioned, it lowers the barriers to entry for an activist attacking a larger company. And I think in particular, it's going to allow smaller activists, maybe less resource activists, to go after larger targets. So that's going to be one very important implication. The marrying up of the proxy card into a unified proxy card will also make it easier for you to pick and choose which directors you want to vote. And so from an activist standpoint, it allows a more efficient targeting of individual directors at a company. So I think that's another thing that we're going to see. And then a third effect, which we haven't seen yet, but may come later in this proxy season or perhaps in the next proxy season, is that we have talked about activists really as economic actors. And this opens up, universal proxy opens up the possibility that non-economic actors or someone who has an issue-oriented agenda could decide that they want to put a candidate on a board. So for example, what if there is a labor-oriented activist that wants to put a labor candidate on a board of a company that is a very large employer? I think it opens up the possibility for that. So I think that Universal Proxy, this is the first proxy season that we're seeing it in effect. To date, the effects have been relatively muted, but we're keeping an eye on it because it has the potential to really change the game around some of these things that we just talked about. And finally, given the high level of activism today, are companies taking any steps to inoculate themselves from activists? Yeah, the first step is to what we call think like an activist. What I mean by that is you have to take a very clinical and objective look at your company. And very importantly, you have to do it based on public data. Because as a board and management team, you have information that investors don't have. And you have to look at stock price performance, operational performance, board composition, governance. And when we do this exercise with companies, what you found is it might lead to changes. So around capital allocation, around return of capital, around portfolio. And sometimes it actually leads to more of a shift in investor messaging. Because again, sometimes what creates an activism situation is that the board has a clear view of what they're trying to achieve. Investors don't have the same view. And so how do you bridge this gap? Sometimes it's with changing the investor messaging and doing this sort of very clinical outside-in analysis helps tremendously for this. Yeah, I would also say that one of the things that I think you need to do is to constantly benchmark your performance against your peer group. And there'll be times where the performance is gapping. And if it is, I think you need to have a strategy of communicating to your investors why that's the case in the moment and why that won't be the case a quarter or so from now. I think that when companies seem that they're reactive, that they're only doing things when a shareholder or an activist is raising the issue, that's when I think you get into a more vulnerable position. If shareholders are used to you grading yourself, being 
being, as Pam said, very clinical about your performance and just being honest about gaps that we might have today, but gaps that we expect to close in the near future. I think that's a very helpful orientation that you should have towards your shareholders. Avi, Pam, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, recorded on Wednesday, March 15th, 2023. If you enjoyed this show, we hope you follow on your platform of choice and tune in next week for another episode. Make sure to share and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you'd like to learn more, visit GS.com and sign up for Briefings, a weekly newsletter from Goldman Sachs about trends shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.